The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter moon shuttle pilots. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. Hola. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode 22, The Making of the Making of 2001, and we'll be talking with author Piers Bizzoni about his new book, The Making of Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. First, a quick program note. We bumped our War of the Worlds episode until next month to get Piers on the show as his book comes out. So don't worry, we haven't forgotten about those strange lights on Mars. Meanwhile, check in with us on Twitter and Facebook, and drop by generationsgeek.com for super helpful links to our shows on the Chronic Rift Network. Plus, email us at thegeeks at generationsgeek.com with questions, comments, and your favorite way to outsmart super-intelligent computers. Now, on with the show. Hello, Piers Bazzoni. Welcome to Generations Geek. Hello, it's really nice to be with you. I am so excited about this. 2001 has been perhaps my favorite film for most of my life. <laughs> so I want to get, get right to the heart of things here. When did you first see 2001, and what was your reaction? I first saw the movie when I was nine years old, and it was a bit like having uh, electric, electric shock therapy in the brain. <laughs> Back in those days, long before Star Wars or Close Encounters or Star Trek or any of this, uh, thing, uh, these things, um, well, I thought it was about the time that Star Trek was kicking off. But anyway, I'd seen a little bit of Star Trek, I think, on TV by then. Yeah. And even that may be a false memory, because I don't know if it started in Britain until the late 60s. But anyway, 2001, I saw. And gosh, it was like opening the door to a new world. I have this theory, whatever grabs you at 9, 10, 11 years old is always going to stay with you. And I guess that's what happened with that movie. And my mom and dad, they really didn't get it. They thought it was pretty to look at and everything, but... They thought, well, bah, what was all that about? And I didn't know about movies and plots and old-fashioned and new-fashioned ways of doing things. And I turned to them and I said, it's not about anything. You're just supposed to enjoy it. <laughs> and that was my sense. I thought it was a fairground ride of some kind. Um, and, of course, uh, as the years have passed, the movie has grown on me more and more. And, of course, the meanings, what the movie has to say, has become more and more apparent to me, I suppose, as the years pass. You saw it on its initial release. I was nine years old, so yes, I guess I did. Yeah. I saw it maybe about at about the same age, nine or so, but it was in one of the re-releases a few years later, and I remember coming out of the theater, just like you said, I just felt like my world had changed, and coming back out of the theater into the sunlight, I saw it at a matinee, just seemed so jarring to be back in the real world. And I also remember my complete sense of confusion, just what just happened in there. <laughs> and well, then the, the, so I, I turned to the, uh, to the grown-up that had attended with me and said, what was that? <laughs> and then he explained it to me, and then the light went on. And it's really kind of a simple story, but people are so used to movies really explaining everything that happens. I think that's really why 2001 uh, stands the test of time so well. Because yeah. people, after all these years, people are still asking themselves, what does that mean? What's going on? What, what is that going on at the end of the movie? What is 
the monolith, what happens to the astronaut. And I think that's great because a work of art that tells you exactly what's going in it, what's going on in it, dies pretty quickly. In fact, that's more or less what a good definition of kitsch, I think. Kitsch art is art where everything is on the chocolate box. There's, there's no question, yeah. there's no ambiguity. This is the very opposite of that. It's something which uh, promotes more questions. And with the passage of time, it promotes new questions. So when the movie was released well, more than 40 years ago, everybody said, yeah, of course that's going to happen in space, but what, ha well, what does that mean at the end of the movie? But today we're asking, hold on, it was very realistic in 1968. Why haven't we actually got that world in space? And then the other question is, hold on, this movie is 40, 50 years old. How come it still stands up so well in comparison to all the modern computer-generated movies? So it's still a movie that can surprise people. My kids are 23 and 24, and they went to see it. They've never been introduced to the movie at all. We went to see it at a, a movie screening, and they both came out thoroughly impressed. Uh, our daughter, Alma, was saying, how did they do that stuff? And this is in an age when kids have seen every single special effect imaginable. Uh, and our son was, wow, what a head trip, man, at the end. Because, of course, <laughs> he was coming to it completely fresh. It is amazing how pristine it looks. Of course, this was back in the days before fancy optical printers and stuff, and so they were doing a lot of double exposures. Well, they were. You know, they'd have uh, part of the picture matted out, and then they'd yeah. reshoot it later. Now, I seem to remember reading that there were times during the, the long production of the movie that some of this stuff would be shot with a mat, and that exposed, partially exposed negative would be uh, stored away. That's right. They were for months, even a That's year, before they came back and did the reverse mat to, to do the insert. You know, they would shoot bits of the uh, action on the lunar surface or something, and that happened right at the beginning of the shooting phase, end of 1965. And they would, as you say, put these these films away uh, with only with half exposed. You know, the, the frame film frame was exposed at the bottom, but not at the top. And they would ask themselves, well, how are we going to fill in the stars in the background? How are we going to have the Earth hanging overhead? And, well, we'll come to that later. We'll fix that later. But in the meantime, let's take really, really careful notes of the composition of the frame. And let's just come back to that. In, in fact, it turned out to be about two years later that they came back to that and solved the problem. Yeah, and, and yet seamlessly done so perfectly that you can't notice. They had this huge, huge record-keeping system, Sasco cards and all this kind of thing, to keep track of the thousands of little snippets of films they had in cans and what was in them and exactly what the composition was and where the lighting was coming from and all of this kind of thing. It was, um, a, it was a staggering piece of management as well as uh, actual special effects to get this movie done because they were inventing special effects and sometimes not knowing for sure how they were going to finish them off. But it all worked in the end. In fact, they used a lot of very old-fashioned techniques including hand-drawing the matte masks frame by frame for anything that moved in a complicated way across the screen because they thought, well, that's the only way of getting the accuracy around the outlines that we need. And what was available in the 1960s, just you always get blue fringe lines, even around the best sort of special effects movies. Yeah. Um, and they wanted to avoid that. They also wanted to avoid the problem of where you have... Um, and it's so often in old-fashioned uh, special effects movies, you see a, a background scene, a desert landscape or whatever you like, and then you see the spaceship or the plane or the superhero flying across, and the spaceship or the plane or the superhero looks grainy in comparison to the rest of the film. Mm -hmm. That's because there have been too many duplicate, pro duplicating processes going on. So they were at pains to avoid that, really trying to make sure that uh, everything that ended up on, on film was at first a close generation 
as you could get so that all the elements, the grain and the color balance and so on matched. Fantastically complicated to do that. But they uh, avoided as many complications as they could by actually using really painstaking, agonizingly slow kind of hand mat mask methods. We just rewatched it uh, earlier this week. And Ella, that was, was that just your second time seeing it? Yeah, I loved it the first time I saw it and seeing it again when I was older. I saw just more, I think. I took in more than I did when I saw it when I was little. Mm -hmm. And the slowness doesn't worry you? No, not at all. Actually, um, some of my friends watched it once at school. They were in like a different group than me. And my friend Gabe comes walking. He's like, we just watched the most boring movie and i'm like oh i thought you watched 2001 uh-huh. just completely confused and he's like we did and i looked at him and he just ran yeah that's weird isn't it because if you go into an art gallery and you see your favorite painting or you have it hanging on the wall in your home you never get bored with it but it doesn't move and here 2001 is like this fantastic two and a half hour sequence of paintings and movements and colors and sound um, it always mystifies me that people can get bored by it. But yes, a lot of people do because they are, they are trained by modern movies to, uh, to have no attention span, really, and not to think about what they're seeing. It's really the most filmic movie ever, uh, that, at least as a, as a sound movie. I mean, the, the entire story is told in the visuals, and the dialogue is largely irrelevant to the larger plot arc that's going on. Right. You just have to make that connection and just really watch it and experience it. It's very immersive in the way it uh, lingers on shots and sets up, you know, the approach of the space plane to the space station and that sort of thing. It just makes it all seem all that more real. Well, that's right. And, of course, because people were watching it when it was first released on a really very wide screen, you know, the, the yep. surround screen. Uh, that was uh, about the, the the equivalent, or in some ways better, to modern sort of virtual realities or, or IMAX screens. Mm-hmm. Um, we forget now how big these great Cinerama movie screens were back then, um, and that's what Kubrick wanted. He he wanted he didn't want to make a movie about space. He wanted to make a movie that gave you the impression that you were kind of in space with them. Uh, yeah. It was, as I said before, a kind of um. Uh, an alternative reality experience, not just a sort of theatrical movie in three acts. Of course, the other thing that's happened since then is it was right and proper for 1960s audiences to be shown space planes docking with space stations and so on, because really they had never seen anything like that done so well. Today, of course, um, it's a commonplace of science fiction that you have, you have you know, pretty good special effects and pretty good spaceships and so on. Um, but it's, the, the pacing and the editing is also part of the movie's artistic achievement because it's inviting you to have a meditative experience rather than just a whiz-bang, crash-crash, laser-blast kind of experience. <laughs> yeah. So you see it as a nine-year-old, and then you flash forward many years to when you wrote Filming the Future, your first book on 2001. When I was a teenager, I always knew I was going to do a book on this movie because I had a peculiar reaction to it. Uh, my head knew that nobody spends all that money making a movie uh, just for one person, but in my heart, I thought that Stanley had more or less done that specifically for me. And I think you know, this is one of those movies where, like all, again, like all great works of art, you have a tremendously personal experience to it. It reaches directly to you. And then, of course, it took some years before I could do the book. And what happened is uh, I met Harry Langer, who was one of the um, principal production designers, 
but he had some sketches left over from, from that that he'd managed to rescue. And that was in the 1990s. And I got together with Simon Atkinson, a friend of mine, who did some really good retro visualizations of the space vehicles, if you like. And again, we're talking at a time before uh, modern desktop and computer CGI programs that anybody can have a go at now. So Simon did this with, with pencil and paper and, and uh, airbrush guns, and he, did a, he did, a, did a great job. And we took some proposals to a publisher called Orem Press, and they were a bit cautious. They said, well, you know, it's an old movie, uh, but we'll take a punt. We'll do 5,000 copies. Ten years and 20,000 copies and several international co-editions later, um, <laughs> they thought, well, that went pretty well. Um, then I did a TV documentary for Channel 4 in England over here, which is now on the Warner Brothers um, Blu-ray of 2001. For instance, one of the things we did is we had um, Brian Johnson, who rigged up a floating pen in the Orion space plane. Mm -hmm. We got um, Penny, Penny Brahms, I think, and Heather Downham, it was Heather Downham, to come and reprise her role as one of the stewardesses. Oh, nice. Uh, and we got them to mess around, putting a, um, putting a pen onto a, a glass sheet and then moving that around. And uh, we got Virgin Atlantic to give us access to a mock-up of what was at that time going to be their new first-class uh, lounge for one of their planes. And so mm -hmm. we had access to that. Uh, we also interviewed Kia Delea for this documentary. And um, a hotel off Times Square in New York. I can't remember its name, and that's a pity because they really do deserve a credit, but I think it might have been called the Warwick Hotel, something like that. They cleared a hotel room for us of everything except the bed. Uh, and it was a really kind of a... It looked pretty similar to the hotel room that was in 2001. And so Kier Delea, who was in his 60s by then, acted out that role where he was lying in the bed and reaching out to touch the monolith. Wow. He also went into the bathroom and looked at his face in the mirror. And that was the, the backdrop to our interview with him. We also had a reunion of Dan Richter, who played Moonwatcher, the ape leader, uh, and several of his troop, one of whom, uh, Simon Davis, as he's credited in the movie, and his real name was Keith Denny, was working in our production office because uh, we just met him entirely by coincidence in Windsor, in the town of Windsor, where um, we had the production studio, and that's where he lived. So that was a nice coincidence. I felt as if somehow the fates were on my side. Wow. Then I kind of left it alone for a decade because I thought, oh, enough already about 2001. I've got other projects to do, other, other books to write and, and, and so on. But then I, I kind of, if, you know, with Stanley dying in 1999 and he'd given me permission to do the, um, the first paperback, but he just apologized that he wasn't able to give very much in terms of time or resources because he was working on a movie called AI. And then after that, he was working on Eyes Wide Shut. Mm-hmm. So I left it a few years after his death because I thought, you don't barge in on a family after they've lost a husband and a father and, and say, oh, can I do a book about this, that, and the other. So I went back, in fact, three years ago, and I spoke to Christiane Kubrick, his wife, and Jan Harlan, his brother-in-law. And um, to my great pleasure, they said, well, yeah, maybe, maybe we can do something because, you know, the archive, Stanley's archive, is now at University of Arts in, of the Arts in London, and there's a lot of material. But they said, look... You could go to some ordinary publisher with this, and great, it'll be a nice little book, but really it would be good to go to a publisher who's going to do this justice, because this is essentially one of the most famous movies ever made, so it deserves a little bit of a special book. And that's how I ended up talking to Tashna. So when you started, you were picturing an updated book, but then it kind of snowballed into this huge thing from their end, they suggested... Yeah, it snowballed because the archive had lots in it. It snowballed because it had a very good relationship with Tashin on a couple of other Kubrick-related projects. 
And it also snowballed because when I first did the paperback, it was kind of legally fairly simple because the ownership of 2001 was with Turner Entertainment and, you know, their lawyers didn't really mind too much. Mm -hmm. But 2001 was obviously now the, one of the proud uh, possessions of Warner Brothers. And it's a, it's, it's a big deal for Warner Brothers to look after most of Stanley's movies. They have the physical movies. Uh, and so, of course, that's quite a big deal to archive them, scan them for modern digital presentation, make sure that the, um, the original uh, CMY masters don't degrade, you know, the black and white strips on which all really great color films are actually preserved because color film itself will rot away eventually. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot to it. Then, of course, there was negotiating with the people who actually hold the archive and negotiating with the publishers to make sure they provide the resources to get the stuff that we needed from the archive scanned and digitally restored, you know, because even though the archive is in good condition and had fantastic photos and so on, you know, they're 50 years old. It's amazing. They're nearly half a century old, these materials. And there are scratches and thumbprints and blotches and color fades and so on. So you had to do, an, well, we had to do an awful lot of uh, restoration um, on top of the conventional straightforward scanning, if you like, mm -hmm. to get the materials ready for print. So I began to realize this was going to be a really, really huge project. And I told Tashin, somewhat heart in mouth, that this threatens to be quite big. And their attitude, their attitude was that we're not setting a budget on this. You know, within reason, let's just do a fantastic project and then work out at the end where we stand. But uh, you know, don't go crazy, but let's, let's, <laughs> and the budget will be whatever this thing costs to do, as long as you're not going on holidays in the Seychelles and the Bahamas. So that was good. And then they brought their own things to the party. They, they said, okay, you're going to use these designers called MM in Paris. They work with Madonna. They work with all these perfume people. They're really, really snazzy, cool people. And I looked at their style of working, and I thought, my God, this is crazy. And they said, well, that's exactly right, because anybody coming to a book on 2001 is going to go down there, and let's use Futuro, typeface road, let's go the sort of retro future road. We need to bring these guys in so that they come up with, with their own crazy angle. And they did. The first thing they said is, this is, there's one shape that you can't make a book, and that is the shape of the monolith in 2001, because the pages will be too tall and too narrow. So let's make the book that shape. <laughs> and that's what we did. And then Tashin said, well, it can't be a cardboard box then, and plastic is kind of cheap. Let's, let's, put, let's put the book inside a steel metal black case, and let's make that case uh, as, almost as solid and substantial as the monolith itself. Um, so all, that, all the time, you know, I'm thinking, well, you guys, you know, your budget is climbing, but it's not my problem. My problem is to <laughs> deliver the materials and, and get this thing done. So that was fantastic. They really threw the resources into it that make this not just a book. You know, everybody says, oh, gosh, that's expensive for a book. And I say, it's not really a book. It's more a publishing event. It's, it's, it's worth it. You're going to have, have this on your shelves for decades to come. Uh, the monolith case alone is just a fantastic thing. You know, I take the books out of it, put the monolith on the shelf. It's, it's a fantastic souvenir. You can also get these lovely prints by Brian Sanders, who was one of the artists that Stanley hired when he was making the movie. And Stanley said, look, we, obviously we have to tell the world about the movie. We have to have magazine articles. We have to have press coverage, tell, you know, warn them this thing's coming. But I kind of don't want to give the game away. I don't want to show off too many photographs of what we're doing just yet. So, Brian, can you do these really sort of impressionistic, lovely paintings and give people a hint of what's going on? 40, 50 years later, the producers of Mad Men, which is one of my favorite TV series of all time, they come yes. along and ask Brian to do the artwork for um, one, of the, one of the more recent series. 
And then we see that and we go to Brian and say, well, look, you've done Mad Men and you've done 2001. Will you release um, some of the artwork uh, for our book? So that was all a very nice, exciting way of, of things going around. Wayne Hag, I don't know if you've heard of Wayne Hag, he's a great science fiction artist and a matte painter, you know, the guys who make um, matte paintings for movies. Yep. He did a special painting for our box art. And then Oliver Rennert, a German artist who's absolutely brilliant, um, did a cutaway of the Discovery spacecraft. We poured over zillions of, of uh, photos and reference materials and, and snapshots from the movies and some of the surviving technical drawings. And he just did a, a most superb uh, job there to show how all the different sets would have fit together. Uh, inside the bowl of the main spacecraft if, if that ship had been built for real. From what I've seen online, it just looks amazing. And this is actually, it's actually four volumes, four individual volumes, right? Instead yeah. of one big book. Some of the books are portrait and some are landscape. Yeah, we've them around. Just seeing a little clip online, it looked to me like the paper looks like it's astonishingly high-quality paper. It's, I mean, the thing about Tashin is they don't produce crappy books. They do. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of why they're so expensive, because making books in the modern world is, is hard. And in the background, of course, it's not just the fact, the enormous expense of scanning uh, all of these archive materials. And you realize we're dealing with a museum environment here. You can't just go in to UAL and say, oh, can, you, can we take away Stanley's archives, please, and then we'll give them back to you later. You have to call them up and scan them in a, in a careful order and, envelope by envelope, box by box. It's a very painstaking and slow process because the archive can say, yes, of course, we want to uh, work with you as the publishers. And yes, of course, we want to do what Stanley Kubrick's family want. But one of the uh, duties we have to, the sta to Stanley Kubrick's family is to preserve this archive for future generations. So we'll be in charge of the handling of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you put in these little slips and requests and, and tell us moment by moment what it is you need. But they were actually very, very good in the end. Uh, they were very um, helpful in helping in, in the scanning process, which is just physically complicated in its own right. You have materials ranging from little 35 millimeter negatives to 8 by 10 inch color transparencies, and it's, it's not easy to get this stuff done. From when you first started pursuing the new edition to now when the book is actually coming out, how long was the process? From my first meeting with Jan Haaland to publication day, two years and ten months. Wow. The first five months was taken up just with contract discussions with Warner Brothers and uh, uh, the Kubrick Estate and various private archives around uh, the, uh, the world as well, including um, a guy called um, Adam Johnson. I'm sure some 2001 fans will be aware of the work he's done in helping to restore Fred Ordway's archive. Fred Ordway was the main technical advisor for the movie. And he has an archive out at the United States Space and Rocket Center near Huntsville. And so Adam was very helpful there. And then you had to make sure, I had to make sure that the contracts, which I signed, the contracts were with me, the, the, the publishers and the movie people were speaking the same language. And of course, they have very different businesses, very different traditions. A simple thing, for instance, uh, the movie people will tend to expect royalty statements every three months, whereas publishers will tend to release royalty statements uh, twice a year. So you have microscopic little clashes like that. Mm -hmm. Typically, a movie will offer you a license for a five-year period, whereas publishers will tend to want a 10-year period. On and on and on, just getting these two contracts to mesh neatly so that if you signed a contract with one person, you weren't clashing with the, the contract of another person. So that took the first sort of five or six months. I was working and researching while I went, but I was doing that on the basis of 
I didn't yet know if I could get this thing off the ground. <laughs> Dan Harlan, of course, was fantastically helpful because every, every time I had a problem, I would go to him and he would usually know the right people to talk to at Warner Brothers um, to help resolve problems. And I'm not saying that they put problems in the way. I'm just saying that you know these, this is a complicated business and yeah. um, everybody says, yeah, absolutely, let's do it. And they, they throw their back into it, but still the paperwork has to mesh. Yeah. Then, of course, it was uh, researching. I was lucky in one regard in, in that I had interviewed movie principals for um, the first version of the book 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I was going to expand it hugely. But in the meantime, I had done this um, film, this documentary. Now, every time you see a doc, you see some fantastic person talking for five minutes about how great it was working with Stanley Kubrick. And, oh, I remember the story about when a light nearly fell on, on someone's head. And then you've gone on to the next interviewee. But, of course, what you've got in the background is maybe two or three hours, well, certainly two hours camera time with each of these people. Now, that's thousands and thousands and thousands of words that have to get transcribed. And you then read those words through and select from those the five minutes that you think are going to be right for the, for the, the documentary. But, of course, I have the transcript still as a resource. So I essentially have these, these interviews, massive interviews with Doug Trumbull, with Q Dulaire. Uh, with um, Ed Bishop, with any number of people. And then Cinefix, Don Shea at Cinefix, very, very kindly provided interviews with people who died a long, long time ago, uh, including Tony Masters, the principal production designer. So that was all good. So I, I had the basis for the, the interview material, and then it was just rereading all of the research materials I'd had for the original book, reading very widely around new things that had come to earth, realizing um, the mistakes I made in the first paperback and trying to correct <laughs> them, and so on and so on. And also doing something I hadn't done very much in the paperback, which is to put the movie in the context of modern times. To do a book about 2001 in, say, 1995, 2001 is still relatively futuristic and relatively fresh, but today it's nearly 50 years ago since that movie was was prepared and and screened. And so you think, well, okay, now is the time to actually get some historical perspective on it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did a lot of that as well in this new volume. The subsidiary volumes... Um, no one has ever seen Journey Beyond the Stars, the treatment that Stanley and Arthur Clarke took to MGM in order to persuade MGM to disgorge its precious millions. Um, so we're publishing that for the first time in history. The other um, book is a set of production notes where um, Stanley was just about to leave New York to come over here to, um, to live here and to get on with making this movie. So they had a... Um, he and his colleagues had a, his, you know, the small team at this point had a production meeting in New York, and uh, they talked about, well, how are we going to do the special effects, and how are we going to build a huge space station, and um, how are we going to get the centrifuge to work? And so the production notes there, which were transcribed and copied from that, were really fascinating. Speaking of Arthur C. Clarke, the first book you did featured a foreword by Arthur. Did you get to uh, interact with him at all, chat with oh, him, correspond? I, I knew him well. I, 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 stayed, I lived with his family in England uh, for about eight months because I was archiving his, uh, his papers over here, or a great deal of his papers. Some of them are still in Sri Lanka, but there's a oh. good stash of papers over here. So I archived what was in this country. Uh, and yes, he was very supportive. He was the one who persuaded Stanley to let me have a crack at the, the first paperback all those years ago. Oh, I'm sorry he's not alive to see this because he would absolutely be over the moon. Strangely, one of the last things that he wrote was a foreword for a book at uh, my old uh, day job over at Zenith Press. Oh, which one was that then? A, a book on Spaceship One. Oh, right. I think I've got that somewhere. Yes, of course. 
Nice book, by the way. Thanks. Yeah, I, that was worked on primarily by one of my uh, co-workers, but uh, they, uh, yeah, that was a fun book uh, to do. And yeah, we were so shocked then when he passed away. You had reached a, a fairly substantial age, I guess. Yeah. No, I can, I can, I, I, I can see him in my mind's eye now. He was, he was very supportive towards me, and I, I did know him. And as far as I can know anyone like that very well, because he's a lot of it is a kind of um, a public persona that he puts on. But um, yeah, you know, if you're willing to, if you're interested in promoting his cause, he's certainly interested in helping you to promote your cause. Mm-hmm. I think Ella had a question here. Fire away. While working on this, did you discover anything you hadn't known before? Yeah, because it, it was really good going through the documentation and the correspondence between uh, Clark and Kubrick. Now, of course, a lot of their discussions would have just happened over a cup of coffee somewhere and, and wouldn't have been written down. But there were also a lot of notes while Clark was traveling or when he was back in Sri Lanka. And Arthur and, and Stanley were kind of communicating by telegrams and letters and all kinds and sometimes in written notes, if they miss each other in, in their office or whatever. And so you've got a really good sense of how HAL came uh, to be uh, invented. Mm-hmm. Um, there's correspondence between Kubrick and uh, IBM, for instance. And IBM come up with this lovely sketch through, uh, uh, at that time, a renowned industrial designer called Elliot Noyce. And IBM's conclusion is, look, uh, computers are going to be machines that men work inside rather than machines that men work around. Now, Stanley knew perfectly well that this was unlikely. It's just that IBM's reputation in those days was built on huge mainframe computers, so they were used to thinking of computers as big. Other companies, of course, were cramming sophisticated computers into boxes no larger than an automobile battery because that's what the space age needed. So Stanley actually uh, threw a wobbly and he wrote a letter to his advisor in the States saying, tell IBM this is just rubbish and I can't use this. All of their drawings are unworkable. This is the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard of. And his advisor wrote back a few days later saying, Stanley, your bombshell just hit in the offices of IBM, although I can assure you that no one was hurt. <laughs> but then Stanley began to realize as the months went by, okay, Arthur, you're coming up with these fantastic and really realistic dramatic things that can happen. But they're all accidents, you know, mishaps before these astronauts. What we need is an antagonist. And at that point, um, the computer's role in the drama grows and grows, as does Kubrick's realization that he's dealing with a tremendous metaphor here for um, the relationship between us and our, our technologies. And as he responds more and more to his instincts and less and less to these you know, thousands of hours of discussions they've had about how to make this movie realistic, he starts writing Arthur a note about, for instance, the teaching machine that gets the apes to, to hurl bones at the beginning. He says, well, look, it's kind of literal here. It's as if the apes are watching an educational TV show. I think we should show the apes' reaction, but not show what they are being shown. I think we're in danger of a kind of schoolboy literalism here. Mm-hmm. And so you can see him pulling back and pulling back and pulling back from exp- explanations. And then ultimately, in the final months of production, when he's really doing the, the edit, he's slashing away at the dialogue and thinking, this is a sound and vision experience here. I don't necessarily want to explain everything. I want to tell the story in pictures. And so you can actually see that process happening. Starting out with, a, okay, how would we go to Jupiter? How would an alien device maybe interfere with our genetic destiny? And then just once he knows that, he thinks, how can I now portray this story in a, in a way that leads more questions than answers. 
that's the first interesting thing I, I, I found to answer Alex's question. On the visual side, among countless treasures I found in the archive were, was a little box of brown envelopes with kind of slightly faded Polaroids stuck to the front. Um, I don't know, Ellie, you'll remember what Polaroids are. They're these sort of instant films with sort of peel-apart film. Where I'm sure, so I think they're still around, but I may be talking to somebody of the purely digital generation. <laughs> no, yeah, we used to have a Polaroid camera. Okay. Now, some of the professional Polaroid film in those days would allow you to take this positive print and then, the, you know, the goopy bit that you get on the other side of it, you peel away. Sometimes if you wash this very carefully in a special chemical and look after it, you get a negative, which you can print from. You can make even bigger prints from. Uh, and so inside these brown envelopes, I found, in fact, that um, uh, quite a lot of these negatives had still been preserved and they were in really good condition. And these were lighting test photographs of some of the spaceships. And so we scanned those and found that you could get, you know, three-foot-wide prints out of them, and they're almost grainless and pin-sharp. That was a real thrill. Stuff like that would turn up from time to time. Well, more or less every time I went to the archive, I found something that I would get up off my chair and say to uh, Richard Daniels and Sarah Mahota, the, um, the senior archivist there, I said, oh, my God, I found this. I found, and they would sort of smile indulgently. Yeah, yeah, you found something that you think is amazing. Great, you know, <laughs> because, of course, they've got hundreds and hundreds of feet of, of archives from umpteen different books. <laughs> So um, they got used to me getting overexcited. Even just listening to you tell the story kind of gives me shivers, the idea of discovering these things from 2001. So I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to just be sitting there in the archives coming across these things. That must have been tremendous fun for you. Yeah. At the same time, you've got a painful sense, although we're very lucky, but most movies from that era, nothing survives. Not a scrap, you know, a few yeah. publicity. Because movie makers didn't have the time or the resources to store anything. It just didn't happen. So we're very lucky that Stanley kept as much as he did. Um, but at the same time, you do get a sense of, well, this is a fraction of what there would have been back in the 1960s. So you kind of mourn how much more there would have been. But at least we get some flavor of it. Now that the book is coming out, it must be obviously very satisfying for you to see the end result. What was it like having that launch party where you really got to celebrate this fabulous book. People really find it hard to me when I say I don't know yet, but it's really now <laughs> the people who buy the book, whether they are happy with it, uh, the judgment of history, the judges, ju the judgment of the readers. Um, I'm still at that stage where I'm looking at certain aspects and thinking, oh, I wish we'd done this, or I could have mm -hmm. included that, or maybe we should have done that differently. It always takes a while for um, the physical appreciation of the object to, to, to settle down with me, if you like. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, I'm feeling, I suppose, a great sense of satisfaction in having nursed quite a complicated project. Somehow, you know, nobody else was going to do this. No one else had it on the cards to try and, to, to try and make this book. So to the extent that it was my idea and to the extent that I'm responsible for lighting the fuse that, that made it happen... Um, and that I the, was the nexus, if you like, of all these resources that other very talented people brought to it. That kind of gives me a lot of satisfaction. Let's talk a little bit about Jerry Anderson. You know, I did ask um, around to see whether or not there's any decent archive. But because uh, it's such a hand-to-mouth existence being an independent filmmaker in this country, uh, he'd sold off a lot of it to here, there, and everywhere. So there's, there's no one archive. I would love to do something um, on, on him, but I don't know whether any serious archive still exists. That's too bad. We're, we're big fans of a lot of his work. There's a new version of Thunderbirds coming out in 2015 uh, for, for TV, and apparently what they're doing is using physical models of the hardware, because it's basically a hardware show, 
yeah. and CGI characters. So you still get that sense of them being not quite human, but at the same time more sophisticated than, than puppets on strings. That's very interesting. I was surprised when we rewatched 2001, I had completely forgotten about uh, Ed Bishop's little part. Oh, yeah. And so when I saw him pop up on the screen uh, flying the uh, the moon shuttle, I was very pleased. He just did not know what Kubrick was going on about. And I did a big interview with him for the book. And he said, well, Stanley um, made me have this conversation with the, 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 the moon ship pilot about secrecy on the moon base. And then we did about umpteen takes. And, you know, it wasn't Shakespeare. I thought the extent to which Stanley was grinding the sausage was a bit excessive. <laughs> uh, and then I asked him what the movie was about and what the context was. And nobody would tell me anything. So Kyrgyzlea and um, Gary Lockwood, they were science fiction readers. So as soon as they, they were introduced to even one element of the film, like the monolith or that, they said, oh, we know what this is. This is the Sentinel, isn't it? This is Arthur C. Clarke's The Sentinel. We're great fans. So Stanley let them in on the whole movie. But for the, the players uh, of, of brief scenes, if you like, he didn't always tell them what was going to be the whole pattern of the movie. Well, that makes sense, really, because yeah, all that stuff was going on outside of their uh, knowledge, the, the, the characters didn't know that they were part That's of right. this giant million-year story. Well, you know, the, the, some of the bit-part actors or something, their, their contributions to the film were absolutely essential, but of course they were only in brief scenes and they wanted to know more than they were being told, and they found that yeah. frustrating. But Stanley's view was, I don't care, just you know, do your job. Thank <laughs> you very much, let's check. And then Ed Bishop... He didn't get to speak at all because Stanley just drowned him out with music because he thought, well, we've, we've had that scene in the space station. I don't need to repeat it. Yeah, poor Ed loses uh, everything. He comes up to speak to Haywood Floyd and then the, the music swells up and, and you don't get That's to hear not, the conversation. That's exactly it. I just saw this morning on the interwebs that there's going to be a new Danger Mouse <laughs> I just hope they get it right. Yeah, it makes me uh, very concerned... Because uh, whenever they take some classic old movie or TV show and, and reboot it, you never know what they're going to do. Well, one part of me thinks, why can't they invent just their own heroes for modern times? But yeah. on the other hand, when you look at what they've done with Batman, uh, and I, I really don't like any of the Batman movies apart from the, um, the Philip Nolan ones where he did a really good job. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're modern myths. They're, they're, mod- they're, they're modern, like the Greek gods. So I can kind of understand why people, uh, James Bond, all of that. I can understand why people return to these characters all the time because they can constantly be reinvented. You know, you can have a anti-Nazi version of Sherlock Holmes. You can have a sort of environmentally aware version of, of Superman. Is it just whatever modern times requires? These superheroes can be remolded. So maybe maybe Danger Mouse will have some modern place to fit in. <laughs> Back to your new book. So it's it's coming out first in this fabulous collector's edition. It's only, what is it, 1,500 copies? That's right. It's a limited edition. Uh, It's signed by Christian Kubrick. Uh, So you know when you get one that this is a very special deal. Uh, If you keep it in good condition, don't get too many thumbprints in it. It'll it'll creep up in value, I'm sure. Tashin knows what it's doing. They've been in the business of making books that are more than just books. Um, They're very good at this. So it does seem eye-wateringly expensive uh, until you realize that you know, if it were if, if, if it were an antique or a, uh, a piece for a car or, or or a decent stereo system or something like that, you know, you would, you, would, you wouldn't think twice about spending oh, twice as much money. Exactly. People aren't used to spending that kind of money on a book. I can only say again, this is not just a book. 
Yeah. I have kind of an offbeat question related to that. You know, I've done book signings, but usually I'm signing a little mass market paperback or a trade paperback. Was it kind of daunting to be signing a limited edition book? Were you, were you ever thinking, oh my gosh, if I smudge the ink? <laughs> well, my handwriting is pretty crap anyway, but <laughs> uh, you don't worry about it. I mean, there are really much more famous people than me with handwriting, handwriting ten times worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> to be honest, I didn't. I, apart from that self-awareness about my my handwriting, I wasn't too worried about that. And there were at the at the launch party, you know, there were lots and lots of signatures um, covering that that front page. There was mm-hmm. Oliver signed and Christiane signed, Jan signed, a couple of other people there. Um, we had Andrew Birkin, who was responsible for the background plates for the Dawn of Man sequences. He signed. Oh, great! So it was a bit of a sign fest, really. And yeah. of course, the fans had forked out money for, for the book. Uh, I think they deserve to be very happy with uh, the book, even without signatures. But to have those extra signatures in, it's just, it's nice. Oh, yeah. Definitely a one-of-a-kind. It's a one-of-a-kind. It's a really unusual project. Can you imagine ever having a project close in scope to this in your career again? <laughs> I can't tell you what it is, and it's not in the publishing world, but I'm already trying to find a working on the outlines of a project that's crazy and wacky and shouldn't be done, just like this one. <laughs> oh, well, we look forward to hearing about it when you're able to spill the beans. I will spill the beans as soon as I can. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on, Piers. It was fabulous to talk to you and hear about your new book. Thank you very much indeed. That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next month for episode 23, War of the War of the Worlds. We'll compare and contrast three adaptations of the classic H.G. Wells novel, the 1938 radio show, the 1953 movie version, and the 2005 movie remake. And we might talk about the musical version and some awful adaptations as well. Generations Geek is part of the Chronogriff Network, which broadcasts from a Mars rover. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicriff.com. Thanks for listening, and come Come back back next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Shiny.